Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4. So glad you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Welcome to our new ministry year here at C4. All over the earth. What a call. What an invitation. What a biblically informed, inspiration-giving, noble call. Now, of course, we know as Christians this call is rooted in Jesus' very last words, go, go into the whole world. But as we begin this year together as a family, as we prepare to step out in ways actually this church has never done, we need to stop and know what hope we're actually praying for, what hope we're supposedly living in, what hope we're going to spread here, there, and, and everywhere. You know, hope is such an easily said word. Jesus, hope of the world. Jesus, hope for humanity. Hope is here. Renewal, revival, awakening. Yes, 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 of course we say. But what does hope really mean? Does it mean desire? Does it mean expectation or chance, trust, anticipation? Is it just wishing? Is it looking forward to something but not sure if it's going to happen? See, there's an enormous difference between longing and concrete knowing. A vast difference between chance and informed trust. An immense difference between wishful thinking and knowing expectation. My daughter is already telling me what she is going to get at Christmas. Now let's talk about that. She has great hope that she will be getting an iPad. She, it is concrete hope for her. It is beyond expectation. It is knowing. Now I'm here to say to you, it is not going to happen. Her hope will be dashed. Yeah, I'm such a terrible dad. It's okay. It's, it's what dads are called to do, love and break. Okay, so, but here's the point. There is a vast difference between knowing and wishing. And this actually is the point we need to wrestle down this morning. This experienced knowing versus wishing it might happen but being unsure reveals the kind of hope, the quality of hope you have or you might not have. So again, before we launch out, before the grand call to prayer, which we're about to explain, before new sites and all the programs launch and evangelism and Christmas, before, 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 we need to ask the question, am I truly filled with Christian hope? Did I ever have Christian hope? Is it not as clear as it once was? Has hope started to be missed in my life because of pain or entertainment or distraction or brokenness? Is my hope growing or is my hope diminishing or was it even there? There's one line in the whole Bible, a line that would easily fit on a t-shirt, a line that would become a hashtag in a moment, Instagram instantaneously. This line though for me is the grand litmus test of hope or the lack of hope. Paul, in his later years, writing to so many different Christian communities, uttered this one line. It is one line that has resounded and echoed down throughout the Christian generations, but actually beyond that. And here it is, Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is, what's the last word? Say it loud. Gain. Now, if this is actually true, Like if he wasn't just saying this for the point of pastoral exaggeration to get the people involved, but like if this is true, 
This can only be said by someone that has not just heard about hope, or not just talked about hope, or not just read about hope, but really truly has experienced hope through encountering the living Jesus. See, you cannot point, and you cannot pray, and you cannot give what you do not have. Let me say it again. You cannot point and you cannot pray and you cannot give for something you do not have. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we go, really? Like, really? I live for Jesus and when I die, when I die, what terrifies most of humanity, we celebrate and say, it is an amazing gain. Why? Because I encounter Jesus. Hope, the real hope, only concrete hope. I know that I know that I know hope could actually produce a life marked by that. Would you agree? One pen, though, these words. He says, for us, though, for me to live as Christ has an addition For me to live is Christ, yes, but plus work or leisure or getting wealth or relationships. And then he writes these words. I've shared this quotation before. The truth is, much of the time, even as Christians all too often, the plus factor has become our primary passion. For me to live is my work or fill in the blank. But see, our progress and our hope and our joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Jesus is our primary and singular passion. And then he writes these words, surely he must be an infinitely greater option than self-gratification. In other words, Jesus and the hope that supposedly we've experienced already in many of our lives is so good and so life-changing, and so gratifying, and so purpose-giving, and so stabilizing, and is such an anchor even in the worst moments of our life, that he would be more drawing than anything else, good or bad, in our life. This statement is basically saying that the hope we supposedly have has such impact in us that it would have to influence your money, your time, your family, your relationships, your spouse. Jesus would be more important to you if this statement was true than your children, more intoxicating than your friends, more significant than the image you want or have built in your mind, more powerful than your online presence, your education, looks, sexuality, influence, history, hopes, future, suffering, lost dreams, doubts, your service. See, here's where we want to start our ministry year. Jesus is why we as Christians are alive, and death even itself is a gain. Why? Because we get to meet the lover of of our souls, Jesus, face to face. That hope is all we have to offer as Christians, nothing else. This hope is all we can offer. This hope is all we can pray into and pray for. Truly, it really is another expression of what we did all last year. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So C4, before we step out in this church, before new sites, before a prayer movement, before we continue to ask God to do new things in our family, before we step out in our region, before we step out in our country, before all over the earth, let's just make sure of one thing. Let's make sure we actually have the hope we're claiming to give out. And let's also stop this morning and be crystal clear about one thing. Can I say authentically, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is this true of you yet? What would move you towards this statement being not just a statement you say, but a truth that you live? Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to immerse ourselves in what God has declared over us, the hope we've been given to see the quality and the intensity of our hope. 
Let me simply state it this way. We have hope because our past is covered. We have hope because our future is secure. And we have hope because God is still working today, right now in your life, in your family, in this region, and all over the earth. Think about it this way. Over the next few weeks, could you be in the position where you say to God, I need to know this hope. I need to be re-inspired and filled with hope. Let me start today with the first statement. That we have hope as Christians because our past is covered. You got a Bible this morning? I'd love you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. Virtually or physically is great. Navigate or turn there. Romans 5. Paul writes these words. This is one of his little sections on hope. And he says these words. Listen closely this morning. Therefore, verse 1. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this this morning. This is really significant because we're talking about hope and spreading it all over the earth. Notice what he says. We have been. We already possess the work of God on our behalf. That is justification through faith. Now, I've preached this before. I think it was in 2009. Justification is one of those words every person in this church should know. It means that you right now, if you're a Christian, are in good standing. You've been made righteous. You're acquitted. We were guilty before God, but by the work of Jesus, God declares us not guilty. We're put into right relationship with God, and all our sins, past, present and future are accounted for and placed on the body of Jesus, dealt with and removed forever. Is that hope inspiring anyone? That's what he says. And as a result of the justification through Jesus, he says we have been already given something. We have peace with God. Peace is like the word hope. Easily said, easily asked for, declared, sung about, written about, planned for, very rarely found in our world. What's the opposite of peace? Anger, uproar, brokenness, death, war. And actually, that's the very description that Paul used of us before we met Jesus. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now we are not that anymore. We have peace. We're not enemies with God because peace is given to us by Jesus, who's the hope of the world. See, it is utterly impossible to experience inner peace by your own power or by spirituality or by religion or by money or sex or fill in the blank because God was not at peace with us and we were not at peace with him. See, peace means so much more though than the absence of hostility. It comes from the Old Testament idea of shalom, well-being, wholeness, prosperity, security, friendship, and salvation. Shalom means justice. Shalom means universal healing. Shalom means reconciliation between God and humans. This peace is experienced in the now when people submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord and become the very dwelling place of God and desire the Father's kingdom, the reign and rule of God. And one day, of course, as Christians, we'll talk about this next week, we know that this peace will spread throughout all of creation and God will redeem all of creation back to the way it was supposed to be. But I want to say this to you again this morning. 
Notice, it is not a future statement. Not we will have peace. What? We have peace. Let me read it again. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That phrase, gained access, is like a flare on a very dark night. It is illuminating. It is brilliant. See, in the secular sense, this is what this Greek word means. When there was a king, kings would have ushers. And ushers would declare someone as they came in. So if I was going before uh, the Queen of England, which I never will, I would be declared John Thompson, the Reverend Dr. Thompson, right, would be ushered in and I would be declared. And when you're declared before a king or a queen, it is the statement, you have the right to be there, you're known by name, ready, and you have the right to directly speak to the monarch. And Paul uses this word because he wants to say to every single normal, everyday, average Christian, all of us, we have been introduced to God, we've been announced to God, and we have every right to walk into his presence. Isn't that hope-giving? Now, for the Jews, it's even a more profound idea. For Jews, one wrote, the idea of having direct access or introduction to God was what? Unthinkable. Because to see God face-to-face was to die. Remember the story in the Old Old Testament. The tabernacle was built. Then the temple was built. And what happened? Strict boundaries were sent. Non-Jews could only go to the outer courts. Then women could only go to the women courts, but not much further. And then men could only go to the men court. And regular priests could go a little farther. Each group could go near to the Holy of Holies. That is where God's very presence was manifest. But no one could actually enter in. Only the high priest could enter in for a few minutes once a year, and if he did it wrong, he died. But Paul declares this about our history and our now. We as Christians get to talk to God. We have been given a continuous introduction because of the grace of Jesus. And this unsought, undeserved, unconditional love of God is why we as Christians declare we have what? Hope. See, that is where we now stand, it says. Our standing is permanent and our standing is immovable. We have constant access to God. Through Jesus, we've been ushered in. We've been announced. We've been given the right to access God. We've been given the right to address God. And there is nothing more hope-giving than the truth that we can face a holy God and meet his love. And Paul says, what should our response be? Well, our response should be verse 2, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast, we, we brag, we have parties, we rejoice, we shout about, we sing about. We have utter confidence in what has been done for us and what is being done in us and through us. And by the way, this provides such a stark contrast between our movement and all the other religious movements and secular movements in the world. As one scholar said, Eastern religions offer no hope with their endless nightmare of reincarnation. Existentialists see the future as an absurd idea. Atheistic evolutionists uh, evolutionists neither have hope or comfort. But as Christians, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says, I want to remind you of all these things. You have peace. You've been introduced. You have access. You are justified. You're in right relationship. But then he knows reality. 
He knows that even though this is all true, it is not wishful, it is knowing. He says life still happens. Not just wonder, but pain and brokenness and disease and death. And so he addresses the question, how do we not lose hope in the middle of walking through life? How does hope not get swallowed up by the things that Jesus has conquered? And then Paul says it. Here in verse 3 is this critical statement about the hope that we proclaim as Christians and we want to see happen all around the world. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Now, suffering here is a word for all suffering, financial, emotional, sexual, spiritual, relational, the whole gamut. And what is being declared here is this. Suffering is a path in which God can do great things. Just read your Bible. Abraham and Isaac. Jacob battling it out with God. Joseph put in prison because his family hates him because he told them what God told him what to say. Moses and Pharaoh, David with his songs in the night, Peter's denial of Jesus, all the apostles except John are murdered for their faith, and John, when he's very aged, is exiled, and then Jesus on the cross. But see, this is what Paul says, suffering becomes one of the most profound places where hope actually shows up. See, hope isn't real until it's tested. Hope isn't real until it's tested. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces what? Say it loud. Hope. We say we've got hope and we want hope. Jesus, hope for, the huma- hope for humanity. We want to pray this all around the world. And Jesus, through his spirit and through Paul, says, okay. Where hope is actually tested and shines brightest is actually in the brokenness of life. Perseverance, fortitude, strength. See, so many of us cry out, oh God, genuinely, I want to know you. God, I want to be all in. For me to live (coughs) is Christ and die is gain. I I want to walk with you and I want a a deep faith. And God says, okay, okay. Well, then out of that cry, some tests and some suffering will come. And at that moment, so many people miss that it was an answer to prayer. This is where people leave the church and people blame the church and blame God or blame themselves. And they look sort of this way and they don't look this way. And they miss that this actually is the place. Because when suffering takes place, though it is not intentionally God's will in the end, it is the place where God's spirit shows up and builds character in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when perseverance and character and the Spirit of God is in the mix, suddenly Christian hope shows up in a way that is blazing bright, that makes no sense, but of course is real. Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and die is gain, because his life had been tested, his hope had been tested, and he found out that Jesus was as good as he said he was. Verse 5, ready? Our hope, this hope, does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope 
Christian hope rooted in Jesus, rooted in his word, and rooted in the spirit does not put us to shame. Jesus' hope overcomes shame, and it removes shame, and it washes away shame. Jesus, Hear this this morning. This is for some of you. Jesus never looks at you as a disgrace. Jesus has never said to his father, you are an embarrassment. You are not an embarrassment. You have never been a dishonor to the king. You are not. Here's a critical one. You have never been a burden to Jesus. He loves you so much. And how do we know that Jesus loves us? Not that he just died, but God poured his love into our hearts to to produce hope. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. The Holy Spirit, we sang about it today, the third person of the Trinity, the same Spirit that hovered over creation, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that gives us spiritual character, the same Spirit that gives us spiritual gifts, the same Spirit is given to us to assure us of our faith, and he is given to empower us to say no to sin, to see the law in context, to give us the power to live a godly life. Let me put it this way. The Holy Spirit reminds every single one of us in this room and all of you watching online what has already been done on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is the great hope giver. And he, the blessed Holy Spirit, is our great hope sustainer. Aren't you glad we've been given the Spirit of God? See, Paul says, I want you to know that in suffering, hope is possible. Why? Because the spirit of the living God that was upon the Lord Jesus, sent within the Trinity, is in you. He is in you, and he will produce character, perseverance, and hope. And then Paul reminds us of this great love, which is the fertile ground for real hope, and he decisively, in another line, deals with every single history sitting in this room. Every single history. He says, you see, at just the right time, see, God has no timing issues, right at the right time, when we were still, I want you to say this loud, what's the word? No, that's not loud. Let's try, if the junior high, come on. What's the word? Make them hear it. We heard them. What's the word? Powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, I want you to remember something. When you were under the dynamic of sin, when you were under the power of death, when you were under the power of the devil, when you thought you were in control and you were not in control, when you were under the wrath of God, when you were lost, religious, unreligious, kind, unkind, when you actually lived a life and the doorpost of your life only had one description over it, ungodly, Christ died for you. That is hope. That is hope. It's like we say, can it be true? Yes. Yes, it is true. Very rarely, he says in verse 7, will anyone die for a righteous person? Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. I love this phrase, God demonstrated. God didn't just talk about it and not do it. God didn't overpromise and underdeliver. It says that God clearly demonstrated, and his forever demonstration is Jesus' hope of the world. 
He says, verse 9, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? We're in right standing with Jesus right now. And we're going to be saved from God the Father's wrath when we face him in the end. See, many of us don't think about our deaths. But it says in the book of Hebrews that right when we die, whenever that takes place, in that very instant, you face a holy God and you do it alone. I want you to think on this this morning, not to be morbid, but I want you to understand the gravity of this so you can see the hope that we have. See, when you face a holy God, when I face a holy God, there is no way out. There are no exit doors when you meet him. You cannot con God. You can't bribe God. You can't run from him. You can't attack him. You can't bully him. You can't outthink him because God is our creator. But when we die as Christians and we encounter a holy God, he will immediately, on the spot, see Jesus' work on us, over us, and in us. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And when we die, we will only encounter God's love through Jesus. How could we not say if this is true for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Because if Jesus has really done all that for us and he's promised us that future, then it is so life-changing that we of course would want to live our life for him. Don't you agree? Verse 10, for if, well, we were God's enemies We were reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not just say he was love. He demonstrates he's love. Why do we have hope this morning? What could truly be spread all over the earth that is different than any other thing, any other political or economic or business model? Like, what do we have to offer in the millions of ideas and voices vying for the human heart? What do we want to pray all over this world? Well, it's this, hope. And the hope is that Jesus has covered our past. And if other people meet the Jesus we have met, that becomes their story too. C4, as we begin this ministry year, I want to personally stop and remind every single one of you. I want to remind us as a whole family of these truths. Because hope gets swallowed up and hope gets distracted. And sometimes we're not sure if it's there. Here it is. You are justified this morning. Do you believe it? You have peace with God this morning. You have been announced before the royal throne of God himself. You have unfettered access and you now stand and Jesus continually declares you as one of his sons and daughters and says you have a right to speak to the king and the king loves when you walk into the throne room. We have hope that does not fade. We have the promise in suffering that perseverance and character and hope will show up. The world does not have that promise. We have that promise. Even God redeemed broken suffering to produce hope. We are reconciled. We are saved through the life of Jesus. We have been saved from God's just coming wrath. And when we face God, let me say it again, you will only meet love. 
You've been received. You have been reconciled. Our hope does not disappoint, the scripture says. Our hope cannot disappoint because we have God's love and we're God's children and Jesus said it's finished and by the way, it actually is finished and it's not wishful thinking. It's not hope, but I'm unsure. It's capital H-O-P-E, hope. Our past may form us, but it does not own us. Our past may shape us, but it does not determine the end. Are you convinced this morning? Are you deeply convinced? Are you sure that the hope spoken about in Scripture is yours? Because if it is true, then you can say, truly, Jesus, yes, hope of humanity. Yes, Jesus is the hope of the world, absolutely. Yes, Jesus is my hope. And if all of that is true, then I can say willingly, without fear, with full trust, for me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. That's where we need to start this year. Because if we're going to talk about hope, we need to know that we know that we know that the work of Christ was not in vain, but is true, and it's applied, and it's real. But let's be honest. So much of the time, even as dedicated, faithful Christians, this gets shaken. And this is why I think as we get going, as we talk about all over the earth, and and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, how this is going to be a global experience of prayer, and we're joining God in his mission I want to stop and say, number one, to everyone, we need a needed prayer in this church for us. Because if we're going to start praying into the renewal and revival and awakening that has begun among us, and then we want to see it spread all over the earth as we travel and go in different places, we need to have God freshly fill up this church with hope. And Paul, in the book of Ephesians, wrote a prayer just like this knowing that we would need this prayer. And remember, as I've taught you, you can claim prayers written in Scripture. God will always answer them. Can I read it before we pray it? It's this. It's Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, this is to Christians, may be enlightened in order that you may, what? Know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. See, Paul, knowing, speaking to a church, says, I want to take a moment to pray that you would be enlightened, that your eyes would be opened again to the hope that you have. Because the only way this church will continue to grow, the only way that this will be an authentic move of God, the only way all over the earth will actually accomplish what God wants to do is if people are deeply rooted in the hope they think they have. And Paul says, let's ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us again to that hope. Would you take a moment? Can we pray about this for a second? Just take a second and we'll do this. Lord, all this you've done for us. And Jesus, you're our hope. You've done all this stuff, but the truth is we need, as people at this moment, a fresh move, a new wave among us of hope. That our hope would be bolstered. Our hope would be real. That we would actually be able to say sincerely, for me to live as Christ and die is gain. So I pray this for me. And I pray this for all my friends here. For the whole church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Can everyone say amen to that? Amen. No, no. get a little Pentecostal. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Yeah, okay. No, ri- amen. 
This is what we need in this church, a real sense of hope as we step out. Now, as I was praying for our community on Friday night, I was struck by the verse in Romans where it says that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, filled into us to produce this love and hope. And as I was praying for our community and praying for myself, I had just a strong sense. So I just want to say this. I'm not done preaching yet. This is just a side note. Um, But it's important. At the end of the service, after everything's done, after everything's done, after Dave's going to give some very strong description of what we're going to do together, I'm going to be standing right here. There'll be some prayer pit, but I'm going to stand right here. And if any one of you personally, and and do not run from the call of God, if any one of you, long-term Christian, brand new Christian, if you are like John, I need the Spirit of God to fill me up in a way I have not been filled in years. I need a hope, especially some of you who have been Christians for so long. I want you to come forward, and we're just going to simply lay hands on you, and we're going to pray that the Spirit of God is filling you with hope in a way that you have not had. Okay, is that good with everyone? We're just going to do that. Here's the second thing I want to say this morning, so significant. This prayer should not just be for our church. This prayer should be for other churches in the area. We should be praying as a church, God, not just us. Think about it like this way. We should be saying, God, we want the whole family in Durham to encounter you. Do you agree with that? God, go get the Baptists. Get them. Anglicans, Methodists, Harvest, CRC, Independent, Pentecostal, the Brethren. We want every bishop, priest, pastor, elder, deacon. We want all the people who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and love his word in this region to have a fresh understanding of his hope. Can you agree with that this morning? Like this, this is what we are asking for in this region. Now, let me just describe something. Think about an epicenter. I've had the unfortunate experience of being in very dangerous earthquakes. And there's this thing called an epicenter in an earthquake, where at the center of it, it starts building up significant energy. And then when different things take place, an energy is released that has effects miles and miles away. See, this is what image I want to get in this church's mind. See, when we're praying for revival in this area, a hope-soaked community. We're not only asking that God shows up here at C4. We are, this is what we're praying. I was praying with a senior pastor this week of Calvary Baptist in Oshawa. And, you know, like, love him. We're very different people, but united in Jesus. We were praying together for the region. And he just said, God, I'm praying. I pray for this region that you would do such a thing. It would globally be known as a place where people meet Jesus. And think about an epicenter where such energy is building up in one region and suddenly when it sort of boils over, it explodes and goes out. But that is not going to happen in this region unless the sovereign God acts among all his people and inspires us with a hope that many of us have but has been jaded or lost or distracted. So not only should we be saying, oh God, would you build in me a new hope? We should be saying, oh God, we want the whole family to experience the love and hope of Jesus again. And there's an amazing prayer in Romans 15. Would you stand with me as we do this? There's an amazing prayer in Romans 15. And this is what we want to pray for every church in the region. That God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, hope of the world, would do this across every church. And I'm going to read it and then we're going to pray it. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Could we agree with that prayer today? So let's pray this for the church. God, God of hope, fill every church in Durham 
with joy and peace. Teach us to trust in him. And Lord, we pray this. May you overflow with hope and by the power of the Holy Spirit in this region. Like just do this, we pray, across every church in the region. Lord, we again boldly ask for renewal. And we boldly ask for revival, real encounters with the living Jesus, the holiness and love of Jesus, the hope of Jesus. And every church in this region, so come Holy Spirit, that every church will be marked by joy and peace and trust and hope and the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen to that this morning? Amen. And here's where I want to end this morning. We are joining God on his mission. God, since Genesis chapter 3, has been coming back for a lost humanity. And our theme all over the earth is us just acknowledging what God is not only doing here, but what we expect him to do globally. It was prophetically said in the book of Matthew, in Jesus' name, the nations will put their hope. And so as we're going to discover in a few minutes after this song, we are inviting you as a church, we as a family, to actually up our level in prayer as we are praying for God, his kingdom to come, his will to be done in every place we travel, our works, our businesses, as we're traveling on vacation, that we begin to ask that God's kingdom would show up in a way we become people of desperate, intentional prayer. We're only joining what God is doing. And I just want to end by saying, show me a praying church and you will find God moving. Show me a praying church and you will see life change. Show me a praying church, signs and wonders will come, courage to preach, the good news will go out, and holiness will begin to spread among us because we've encountered the hope of Christ and the love of God. So Lord God, King of kings and Lord of lords, great I am. Here's what we pray this morning. Lord, as we dedicate this ministry year to you and all we're about to do, we pray that every person connected to C4 would be filled with hope again. We pray our eyes would be enlightened. We pray for hope in every other church in the region. And we pray that you now, Holy Spirit, would begin to instruct us and show us and lead us how to pray across this area, across our homes, and across the world in a way we've never done. Lord, we pray that this church and this region would become an epicenter for God's sovereign move where hope literally builds so strong that it globally is released. God, you are most welcome here. Come and do your work. In the name of God the Father, we pray. Name God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's sing to him. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.